If I asked you what you would do starting tomorrow to have the greatest positive impact that you possibly could on people's lives, and if money was no object, what would you say? What would you do? Would you start a new business? Probably not, right? But maybe your answer is that you'd become a philanthropist and start splashing the cash around, or even more likely, that you might start a nonprofit organization. Well, you don't have to be rich to start a nonprofit, and in many cases, extreme wealth and philanthropy don't walk hand in hand with many nonprofit organizations. As recently as 2021, there were nearly 2 million nonprofit organizations registered and operating in the United States alone. That's what we typically refer to here as a 501c3 nonprofit organization, a label that refers to certain nonprofits' legal classifications and their tax exempt status. Nonprofits can be truly inspiring examples of what change can be made on local, national, and even international levels when profit is not prioritized over social impact. But many nonprofits run into a very familiar slate of problems. Fundraising, upon which many nonprofits rely, is one constant concern, especially when an economy cools off, when inflation soars, and when people experience what's called donor fatigue, a sort of mental or emotional exhaustion from repeatedly contributing to different causes that they care about. So how do nonprofit organizations navigate these tricky waters to be able to create a positive impact? What are some examples of creative and innovative ways to make change while not getting stuck in the mire of what so many nonprofits struggle with? From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Rosillo. We're speaking today with Allison Bologna. She's an award-winning journalist and television news anchor for Rhode Island's NBC10 News Sunrise program, where she's been voted the top female reporter in the region and the best TV morning news anchor for years. When she's not delivering more than 12 hours of live on-air broadcasts every week, Allison is also the founder and executive director of Shree Studio, a yoga studio and social enterprise that, through its 501c3 nonprofit organization named Shree Service Corps, funds more than 100 free classes to underrepresented communities throughout the region, including adults and children with developmental and intellectual disabilities, military veterans, school children, healthcare workers and patients in hospitals, those utilizing shelters, incarcerated youth, men and women in recovery, and in a variety of clinics, and more. Founded in 2010, Shri is the only yoga outreach organization of its kind in Rhode Island, combining an innovative approach to movement-based yoga classes with community building, mindfulness, and character education components built into their proprietary curriculum. With over 8,000 students served every year, Shri has a proven track record of creating important healing outcomes across many area communities. Among the honors and awards that she has received as a journalist and in her work leading Shri as an organization, Allison has received the 2020 Myra Craft MVP Award from the New England Patriots Foundation, an Emmy Award, an Edward R. Murrow Award, two Associated Press Awards, an Investigative Reporters and Editors Award, and many more. Allison, thank you so much for being here and welcome to The New Story Is. It's nice to see you, Dave. It's Over great the computer, to have you. not in a yoga Studio right I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah, Allison and I know each other from from Shri, and I'm excited to speak with you about it. And I'm not sure we'll talk about the the programs that I was involved with specifically, but something that I've been looking forward to asking you, Allison, since we we do go back a few years, is to to catch up with you about how Shri has been. Uh, doing in recent years, especially in light of this little thing that uh, you might have heard about as a, as a journalist and news anchor called the COVID-19 pandemic, um, especially over the last couple of years. I know in 2020 and in 2021, uh, which of course saw just about every space in, in the world where people could gather and congregate, shut down for prolonged stretches as a part of the pandemic uh, prevention. Um, Shri still managed to fund over 2,900 free yoga outreach classes. So I'm wondering if we could start with asking you about how the organization maneuvered and responded to the pandemic so that it could still provide these opportunities for mindfulness and breathing and wellness to the communities that really need them. In March of 2020, Dave, covering the news, we could see that the pandemic was getting worse 
progressively day by day. So it was on Friday, March 13th. This was before the state shut everything down. We proactively, a team of us decided to essentially close the doors to our physical yoga location, our studio location in Pawtucket. And we did this because that afternoon we were expecting to see several different social service agencies for adults with intellectual developmental and physical disabilities, we had veterans groups coming in, and we just wanted to be extra careful, especially in March of 2020, when we didn't know how serious COVID was going to be. And I think that was the right call, as we now know in 2022, how serious um, the pandemic still is in many ways. So we closed our physical doors on March 13th of 2020 in Pawtucket. And within two weeks, thanks to a phenomenal operations director, Shannon, we were up and running on Facebook Live and Zoom within two weeks. And Shannon and I just worked with partners, reached out to them, picked up the phone and said, a big piece of Shree's methodology is about showing up. So we may not be able to show up for you in person in a yoga studio, but if we can work out the technology and get a few of you, even if it's one or two students on the other side of an iPad, an iPhone, a camera, whatever it might be, to teach, we'll be there if you want to be there. So we started pretty strong because so many different agencies were open-minded, which was key to all of this, in working with us. But Dave, we had worked with these partners for over 10 years. So we had a relationship with them. So when we wanted to try something new and they knew how fast we all work as far as making things happen, they said, sure, let's give it a try. We don't know if it'll work, but we'll give it a try. So we started working off phones, laptops, you name it. We would zoom in or Facebook live into group homes, hospitals, state-run hospitals, private hospitals. And even if one or two students showed up, We still showed up and we connected with students in a way to just say, good morning, Dave. I'm Allison. How can I support you? So S in Shri means support, you know, from our training, support, honor, respect, inspire. And our classes looked different than they would in a physical yoga studio, but we were showing up for people and our classes started building and building because what we thought was going to be two or three months ended up being six months, a year two years. And now we are in person. We have our studio, brand new mill being constructed, but we've gotten pretty good at the hybrid model, which will stay with us as we move forward. And we even have some teachers teaching remotely for us with teachers in person too. So we've learned a lot, but I think it was about figuring out a way to show up for our students and quite frankly, for our teachers too, to connect. And we did make one decision really early on that I think was fundamental in the success of being able to deliver so many classes so quickly, is that we all decided unanimously that we wanted to do live programming. We didn't want to just record a bunch of videos and send it off to agencies. We wanted to be in real time with students. If all we did was reach up high, bend down low, twist and talk, that was better than just pressing play because we wanted to be in real time with folks, especially when we were all so isolated. So that's what we did. And that model is still kind of sticking around in, in a lot of different forms. And the technology's gotten better, and we were able through our nonprofit arm to bring and fund iPads and bring them into group homes, agencies, schools, so that we were able to connect with more people who we probably wouldn't have been able to connect with otherwise. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. And you mentioned there utilizing this hybrid model of being able to utilize Mm -hmm. the technology in ways that we're able to distribute live classes and live experiences, which, uh, and also really give a lot of, um, extra attention and credit to the fact that you're dealing with populations who may have been and may re- remain at high, heightened risks of um, mm-hmm. of illness in the midst of a pandemic when things were still so unknown and, and remain to, you know, remain um, uh, pretty, pretty tenuous today as, as COVID is we still We have to be careful about us. it too, Dave, because we didn't want to create more anxiety by introducing more technology at yeah. a time of great stress. So right. we didn't push the agencies that said, you know, not yet. Uh, We really Mm -hmm. want to connect, but just not yet. So with those agencies, we created like a phone tree and we were just making phone calls to just check in. So it was just Mm -hmm. something rather than nothing. But I think it was really important to pay attention to when an agency said, we really want to make this work, but um, let let us get through the basics within our group home or hospital before we throw this in. So we paid attention to that too. I'm the type that likes to jump in and get it all done right away. So I had to check myself, self-regulate and pull back a little bit, but we kept checking in weekly to say, we're ready if you are. Um, mm-hmm. Cause there were a couple of places like the Alzheimer's center where I teach the technology was too stressful for caretakers at home who didn't have a break. And it's like one thing they needed 
was a break. And the last thing they needed was now I got to log into a class and try and figure this out. It's too much. So Mm -hmm. there were certain agencies we did take a break and we showed up in different ways, but it's about during the pandemic, at least being available for whoever wanted to see our teachers and our curriculum um, at their pace. And I think that was an important component of its success. Yeah. Something that I'm hearing implicit in what you're describing, Allison, is this um, essence of like creativity, flexibility, not a yoga pun, although I guess it's appropriate, um, <laughs> and, and, and trust in the relationships that you have with these different organizations um, to, be, mm-hmm. to, to be and to have been malleable in, in response to not only what you yourself as, the, as the, the leader and executive director of the organization wanted to do or what your team and your staff and your teachers wanted to do, but also what the people who maybe know these populations best or work with them every day um, – we're, we're getting from them. So it feels like it was a very right. responsive process. Could you talk to us a little bit about how the relationships that you have and how the trust that's developed maybe over whether it's days or weeks or months or years influences the decisions that get made, whether we're talking about COVID response or just programming in general? Sure. Well, yoga, as you know, because you're a certified yoga teacher and you've done trees training means connection to yoga, to, to bring people together union. And that starts, I would say, well before any yoga class takes place at Shree. It's a it's me meeting somebody, maybe at an event, a phone call, or I've heard about you email. We want to bring this to our school. And the connection starts from there. And how you respond, how quickly, how sensitive you are to the needs of a particular population is where everything begins to connect. So we talk all the time about how our administrative team, which there's a group of four of us, It takes about two hours of administrative time for each hour of teaching to really build that trust, especially in the beginning. And then knowing that when the the class gets handed off to a main teacher, and then we have two sub-teachers assigned to each group so that every group of students consistently sees one of three people. It's not random people coming in to them. We have more than 40 teachers, but each group will consistently see the same three teachers over the years. It makes a huge difference. There's a huge time component in building relationships with people, and it goes all the way from the executive director down to the classroom teacher, to the substitute teacher, to the PE teacher, to the direct service professional in a particular group. So we don't rush that process. We're very responsive. We answer emails within 24 hours. But if we didn't have these relationships built in with these other nonprofit partners before the pandemic, I don't think we would have been as successful as just starting these programs. I think our agencies who we've been working with for so long knew they could trust us, knew, knows we show up for classes and that we're organized on the back end. Because if you're not organized on the back end, then the folks on the front end can't do their job purely because they'd be too bogged down with, with minutiae, right? So mm-hmm. what we try to do is set everything up, create the tone, and then that spirit supposed to deliver through when um, teachers and students connect. And I think reliability is really important in managing nonprofit work because you can have all the good intentions in the world, but if it's not seamless and it's not administered well, you become a burden to the people you're trying to serve rather than lifting them up. I think the reason why we work so well in especially some big public schools is because the administration knows once the schedule's in place, they can count on us to show up. They've seen the curriculum. They know what we're trying to do. They've met our teachers so they can count on us. And I think that's really important. The intention has to be there. But if you're not consistently following through, you're not going to be serving your original purpose. So that takes years of trust and credibility to build. And it comes from the initial phone call all the way down to the teachers on time. um, And it's using appropriate language and techniques, too. Yeah, it's very it's very comprehensive. It's very comprehensive from it from start to, to finish. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and and I do I do have some firsthand experience with with that. I'm trying not to center myself in this conversation, um, uh, given our even despite our relationship. But um, with with regard to Shreed nowadays as a whole, I know the organization serves uh, over eight thousand. I think it's I think the most recent number was eight thousand five hundred students per year, and about half of which receive these these classes completely free through the nonprofit completely arm. Free. Yeah, yeah, Shree so Service Corps. Could yeah, I was going to say could you explain sure. the difference between Shree Studio and the Service Corps, how these two yeah. entities like interact and like what how they make up the larger social enterprise for our listeners. 
So I think if you are developing an organization that you want to have social impact, you need to know what the problem is before you try and solve it, right? So I started Shree in an empty storefront in 2010 because I knew downtown Pawtucket, my beloved city, needed a little love, (laughs) especially in the downtown district. So I did what was quick, which was I found an empty space. I found rent that I could afford, especially before I ever had a studio before and had to build it from the ground up. And I just started by starting Shree Studio. So it was just me. I put my own money into it. I opened the doors and I figured whatever was going to happen was going to happen. But I knew if I had X number of students per day, I could pay the rent and everything would be okay. But I also knew that being in downtown Pawtucket was important because we wanted to help. Part of the mission was revitalize downtown through the practice of yoga, um, but also do it in a way that we could reach populations who otherwise didn't have access. And Pawtucket is an economically challenged city in Rhode Island. We border Central Falls, same thing. These are two cities that um, have struggled since the collapse of the Industrial Revolution. You'll drive through the city and you'll see empty mills where people used to be bustling and now they're not. And it's been struggling to make a comeback. So I started with um, just opening up the studio to offer low cost classes. So people would pay $10 maybe for a class. And then we started to do the direct outreach work by partnering with different schools, social service agencies on our block with the recovery project being the first one in 2011, because Jim Gillen, who started the peer-to-peer recovery center down the street from us, knocked on our door and said, you know, how would you feel about some folks before or after their AA or NA meetings coming into this space and trying yoga? And I said, Sure. And that was how we started delivering our outreach program. The Providence Center funded, still funds the Anchor Recovery Community Center. So they would pay our studio a flat rate. It was $50 for the class with an unlimited number of students. And it helped us pay our teacher. Um, very simply, it was that was the model. <laughs> the Providence Center would pay $50 a class. About 20 students would show up. Okay, so compare this to a commercial yoga studio, very different, where most students are paying $15 a piece on their own. The folks would come for free, and the Providence Center had a grant, and they would help us cover to pay the teacher and then the overhead rent and the administrative duties, such as somebody to schedule, help develop the curriculum, and um, also just operate the studio. But then as we started getting deeper and deeper and more folks wanted to come to us, not every school or agency is as well funded as the Providence Center. So they would want our program, but while we would offer it for free to the students, the school may not have had a line item in their budget to pay $50, $60, $70 for the class. So that's when we saw the problem. And the problem was that other nonprofits were struggling within their own budgets. So how can we still show up and serve? So in 2012, that's when we decided to run a fundraiser to see if the public would generally support a model like this. And I think our first fundraiser we brought in, I don't know, $4,500, $5,000, but it was enough for us to get a lawyer and to get an accountant to put together an IRS application. And we knew then that the community would step up to support it and that we could then serve other nonprofits who may not have it in their budget, even for low cost classes that we could deliver it for free. So Shree Service Corps is a nonprofit 501c3 that when an agency can't pay that low cost flat rate, then we offer it for free to not just the students, but also to the agencies to which they belong. So over 100 classes, and it was even more than that, Dave, during the pandemic, but those classes are completely free to the community students and to the agencies through which they come to us. And we've been able to do that through an annual fundraiser, and then we've, we've developed a reputation over the years about proven impacts and outcomes. So now we have really successful fundraising platforms. CVS Health funds us, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Rhode Island funds us, the Fogarty Foundation that does tremendous work specifically for adults with intellectual, physical, and developmental disabilities. But all of this comes through relationship building. I invite people to the classes I teach and other people teach. I'm transparent with what the curriculum looks like. I explain how trainings operate. So it's not like we're throwing just anybody into a class to teach. There's an 80-hour training with best practices and an apprenticeship program where project leaders mentor younger teachers or newer teachers so that there's a whole methodology to this. And all of that goes into solving the problem of health equity. And that's really what we're trying to do. Yoga is a beautiful practice, but for a long time, It's really only been available to people in this country who have disposable income, time, 
or disposable income. And what we were trying to do at Shree was to change that by creating space, skilled teachers, and then a model through which on top of showing up on time and providing resources, we could also pay our teachers so they feel valued, but not create a financial burden or hardship on other nonprofits, especially small ones that want to do good work, but this might be for now an extra for them. Having said that, behavioral health has now become front and center for so many different organizations. So now they're seeing the value in this more so than they did in the past. But our fundraising and our advocacy efforts won't stop because we want to be able to say yes to as many nonprofits as we can. Yeah. And you you hit the nail on the head when you describe relationship building as the crux to all of it. And I'm wondering where where did the skill and the practice of relationship building come for you? Is this something you've always been good at? Have you always been a people person? Does Is there something in <laughs> your journalistic roots of like getting people to answer questions or, or evoking you know, responses and interviewing people where relationship building and developing trust has been something central to the work that you've always done? Is it is it personal? Is it professional? Is it both? What do you think? I think it kind of comes natural to me. I talk a lot. <laughs> I like to talk to people. I like to ask questions. I like to solve problems. Um, one of the reasons why I started Shree is because my youngest sister is disabled. She lives in Rhode Island now. She's a 40-year-old woman. She's autistic, nonverbal. So I've grown up um, helping, serving her community. And I always wondered why it wasn't more integrated into the things that we get to enjoy. So growing up with Jackie, I think I've been immersed in service in that way. But I also do, yeah, I think my journalism background has helped a little bit, especially in Rhode Island, because we're such a small state. And having worked at Channel 10 for so many years, I've naturally just through my job gotten to know so many people from the governor to the commerce secretary, to the executive director of all kinds of different nonprofits down to my neighbors and people who now show up for yoga classes. So I just feel a very um, instinct, if you will. I think it's instinctual for me to show up and do things um, that make sense. And I always tell everybody service. A lot of people think it's one way. It's, it's not one sided at all. You get a lot of out of this work as well. So I have fun doing it. I don't think I would have been able to keep up the pace for we're going on 13 years if it wasn't enjoyable and you didn't feel passion and purpose with it. I think that's really important. I tell so many people who come to Shree who want to teach, if you're driven by it and you have fun doing it, then you'll be doing a good job at it, right? You'll be showing up mm. fully. If it's something where you see it on your schedule and it's you don't want to show up at that school on that particular day to teach, maybe it's time for a break because you're not going to be serving the community in the same way. So for me, I think it just it just comes from inside. You've known me. It just kind of comes from inside. I, I like meeting people and connecting. Yeah. From the, from the, can we talk about um, your background in journalism and news broadcasting sure. today a little bit? Because I'm really curious about, um, there's been a lot of changes like in the news and in media, like writ large, sure. the rise of the internet in the last 25-ish years, um, social media, um, and everything that's come with it. The rise of like fake news, uh, the erosion of trust in different institutions. For you in your career, I'm wondering what kind. What, what are some of the biggest changes that you've witnessed in your career as a journalist and and as a news anchor, someone who is like literally sure. the face of one of the faces of like a morning news program, and, and everybody kind of like hears the news from you. What how, what would you say like has changed the most in terms of being a journalist or an on air on air television anchor over your career? I think what's important is local news. City council meetings, the more local, the better. You know, when you talk about local food is healthier for you. I think local news is also healthy for you because you want to know what's going on in your media community versus these big national headlines. When I first started um, in news, I was a producer at a assistant producer, like assistant producer. There's many, many ranks before you get all the way up to senior producers, executive producers. But I was 21 years old when I started at NBC News and I started at Dateline NBC as an assistant producer. And I thought at that time, well, this is New York City. I'm coming back, right? So I was going to get my producing experience in. I was fortunate because NBC owned Channel 10 in Rhode Island. So it was like a job transfer when I went from producing to reporting. And I honestly thought that Rhode Island was going to be a pit stop. I was going to come, 
get my experience, bye-bye Rhode Island, <laughs> move back to New York City. But as I started doing more local news, I loved the pace of it. It's fast. I liked how uber local it was, especially in a state like ours, where you can get from the bottom to the top in an hour and meet so many people in between. And I liked the impact you could have in local news. I would never have been able to build Shree if I had worked on a national level. There's no way. I did leave. I went to Boston and then came back. But I also work for a station that genuinely cares about community outreach. And when I came back to Rhode Island, I was very clear and transparent that I do this sort of work on the side and that it was important to me and I wouldn't give it up. And granted, I'm not going to be doing stories about Shree at Channel 10 or anywhere else, but they do see the value in it as far as getting to know your community better on that side makes you a better journalist on the other side too, right? Because you're more connected. So when it comes to the media, I believe in local news. I believe in the power of local news. I think when a lot of young people start off, they think they want to, you know, go to the Today Show, anchor the local, you know, national news, which is lofty and great and pays you a lot of money. But there's something really beautiful about being in your community, living in it, serving in it, and reporting on it to the point where I'm coming up on almost two years of enterprise reporting on the opioids epidemic. And one of the reasons why I think they chose me to report on it was because of all my work in the recovery community through Shree. The recovery project was the first outreach project I had mentioned that we had started. So when my news director said, you know, the opioids epidemic is a real problem. How do you feel about just go out there, turn two stories a month for me? I said, sure. And I've been doing that for almost two years now. And a lot of my contacts have come through my community outreach work. And they give me basically whatever I want to do with a trusted photographer who I've worked worked with Paul Tierney also for 20 years. We've done all kinds of different stories. The story that's airing tomorrow night has to do with murals and how art can help heal when it comes to awareness in the in the, in the war on opioids, if you will. I've interviewed the attorney general about the opioid settlements, and I've done profiles on the same peer-to-peer recovery centers that I've gotten to know about over the last decade through Shree. So I think it all comes together. If you live and work in the same community and you're invested in it, chances are you can have more of an impact. So I've had other offers to go other places, but Rhode Island's, I'm really happy here, and I feel like the community can do so much more, set an example here that can then inspire others outside of New England. And that's what I'm trying to do with other organizations around the country in outreach too. I get calls and emails about how did you do what you do? And I'm, I'm here to help. I want to collaborate. I want to see this work go far beyond um, New England. So that's a roundabout answer, but I think local news is important. And I think if you are a strong enough journalist who cares about the editorial content and you speak up. And for me as an anchor, not just read the teleprompter, but be engaged about what's in it and work with an executive producer. And for me, it's Mario of anchor who listens to you and who's also engaged in the community. Then you can have an impact in kind of a troubling time with the media in a positive way. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot more conversation that I'm hearing now uh, in the media and in journalism circles who who, who share the idea that maybe um, the, the, glo- the, the attention that we give to global events and even to national events, while important, are, maybe diffuse the attention and energy that would be better served on a local level because of what we're talking about in terms of relationships and affecting change in our own backyards. Um, there's this belief, you know, a belief or an idea that if people were as engaged in national, like presidential elections as they were in local elections, either in them, themselves getting involved, running for, you know, local mm-hmm. offices, um, or just showing up to town councils and things and getting more politically involved. Mm-hmm. That we might actually feel a lot more a like politically satisfied yes. with our institutions, right. more feel more like civically engaged, not for the sake of just like noble purposes, but but for actually seeing the benefits of it and and being even recipients right. of 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 government and public service. And it sounds like you agree right? with, because you can yeah. achieve it on a local level, right? It's a lot more accessible than even mm-hmm. though it, national news and presidential elections feel 
in a way more accessible to us or more relatable to us. Some like a shared language where we all understand like who you're for, who you're against, where the teams are, um, like what you're in favor of, what you're not. And it's not to say that those issues and in, in national matters don't matter, but there is something significant oftentimes overlooked. It's almost like being too close to it to see the, the value or importance of it right. when if you were, or maybe it's just not sexy enough. I don't, I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> I think I, I like to go into city hall and know who my representatives are. I want to know what I'm paying for taxes. I want to know where public dollars are going. I want to know how public transportation, for example, in Rhode Island, in Pataka, we've got a big train station being built now, how that will benefit our community and folks who need more access to services. I like to know what's happening in my own city and town because it's a domino effect, right? Pawtucket's also um, a fairly large city. It's the fourth largest city, I believe, in the city in the state of Rhode Island. And a lot of what happens here, Tidewater Landing is a huge story right now for a lot of different reasons. But I think you can't complain about things if you're not invested in showing up and putting some skill in them too. And it all starts on a local level. Everybody and everything has to start somewhere, right? But if you want to be of service, I always tell people, instead of taking on like the big, big, big stuff, start on your street. That's what I did. I started literally walking distance from my apartment. I lived in the loft apartments behind City Hall in Pawtucket. We opened Shree, you know, just a couple of blocks away, popped over the bridge, over the river, walked up the hill, and that's where we started Shree. So when I say I believe in being local, I, I really mean it. It's important. Yeah. And yeah. if you do something on a local level and it works, there are ways to scale it. And you've learned from your mistakes on a smaller level and your successes and you can build upon on a bigger level. And that's that's what we've been doing. We started on Broad Street, then we moved to the Armory, then we moved to Hope Artiste. We kept outgrowing leased spaces, which brought us right before the pandemic to investing in a 15,000 square foot historic blighted mill. Now, urban revitalization was always the tagline for our mission, but you have to take the time and the skills before you can jump onto something like that. And now our mission, which we can talk about if you want, is expanding even deeper into affordable housing. So, but local, local is so important. And I believe that professionally at my job in the morning, when I get there at 345, four in the morning. Local, 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 what matters to the person in Pawtucket, Cranston, Providence, Portsmouth, Block Island was big today. Um, A lot of news about Block Island recently. But my point is news you can use. And I I appreciate that with Shree too. It's I'm showing up for you with skills you can use to socially, socially and emotionally feel good in your body and in your community. So they parallel one another. Both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. So you you mentioned yeah. this 15,000 square foot space, which is in an, an underutilized mill. Um, and, and it's a part of this urban revitalization initiative that I think is happening in conjunction with the city of Pawtucket. Uh, and as you yes. mentioned, Pawtucket, like a lot of like a lot of cities like Central Falls, even I think of like Worcester and Massachusetts, a lot of cities that were really heavily dependent on the textile industry and textile mills when they left the region. Um, many of these Cities have never fully recovered economically from from that loss. Um, the I understand that this construction that you're uh, building is, is something like three point seven million dollar project. So there's a lot going on. I imagine costs have inflated uh, with you know yeah, everything that else has been be going on. <laughs> it has turned out to be three point seven million, um, yeah. and there's a lot yeah. of help. I know it's going into the project. What will this build out mean for Shri and for um, for the community outreach and, and services that you provided to the community? Like what's, what's the vision and what are you most excited about with this new space being completed? I am most excited. Well, there's, I, I wouldn't rank anything necessarily, but the neighborhood revitalization piece is huge for us. This building is a gorgeous building on the register of historic places. It's been sitting there underutilized for many, many years. And it's just so exciting to be bringing light, which is a definition of Shri back into this space. Fires right after we purchased the building destroyed a million square feet right next door to us of historically significant bills. We were so fortunate that we were saved by that. Then the pandemic after it, then we had to fight inflation. But we are on the other side of all of that. So it's neighborhood revitalization. It's creating more accessible space for people who otherwise wouldn't have it. We are 500 feet from a new commuter rail 
hub station, which will have affordable transportation options for folks. Um, and we are hoping to double the number of students served because we'll have brand new, beautiful space so we can physically fit twice as many people into our space. We'll also have a boardroom, gender neutral bathroom. So we'll be able to offer wellness services as well. We'll have a treatment center for Reiki, um, massage, which otherwise for many folks in the communities we serve, it wouldn't be accessible either by skill or because of finances. So our nonprofit is expanding to be able to offer those services for free to some of our students across our different outreach programs. And then our nonprofit would reimburse at reduced rates those who we choose to offer those services in a sensitive and inclusive way. But also we're expanding our mission. There'll be across the hall from us, two other nonprofits moving in. One of them will be an art studio run by the Arc of Blackstone Valley. So Dave, you've met some of the students from our Adaptive Yoga Project who are artists at the Flying Shuttles Art Studio. They are going to be moving in across the hall from us. So interesting textiles. This building was a new administration building for the textile complex that was here. And now we have Shri students who've been practicing with us since 2012, who across the hall from our studio and wellness um, treatment center will be weaving, will be weaving um, and painting, and they'll have gallery space open to the public. And then as of right now, the Segway Charter School, which is a charter school in Central Falls serving kids K through eight, where we teach, will be opening up their family engagement center and they'll be working with the food bank. So we're expanding into commercial real estate in a social, socially impactful way to create beautiful new space in an otherwise blighted building for other nonprofits. And then upstairs, we are, so I hope solving a problem or trying to, which is we have a huge crisis when it comes to affordable housing. So our top floor will be a mixture of affordable housing units at a rate of 70% and three market rate units too, so that we are kind of turning that model upside down where a lot of affordable housing work, which is great work, tends to be kind of in silos in different sections of cities or literally standalone buildings. And it's like, that's the affordable housing building. Mm -hmm. Our model has commercial space on the first floor and we're mixing market rate with affordable housing. Um, and we'll be looking to work with veterans to occupy those spaces in addition to adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities who don't need to be in a group home or quite frankly, don't want to be in a group home and can't live with mom and dad or brother and sister anymore and want more of an urban experience. And we'll do workforce development work on the first floor with those folks as well. So it's an idea of preserving a building, bringing it back, opening up the neighborhood, and then creating services outside of housing, but also wellness services, wraparound services, so that people are coming and going from this building for the first time in a significant way in more than two or three decades. So we'll be kind of the first ones to move in. There is other housing being developed around us, but um, we've had tremendous support from the state, the city, and also private foundations as well, because inflation was not supposed to be 3.7 million. (laughs) Inflation, the cost of construction materials sent us $700,000 over budget. But instead of giving up, we asked for help. We explained our budgets, our pro formas. I hired Pawtucket Central Falls Development Corporation to be the lead on this. So they have 40 plus years of proven experience doing these sorts of projects. Um, we're also investing, paying them a developer's fee. So we're investing in another nonprofit with this work. But this, we're not alone in dealing with inflation. But instead of kind of throwing our hands up in the air and saying, well, we tried, but, and selling the building, we, we figured out ways to make it work with value engineering and going to the city and state and saying, we want to keep moving forward. This is good for the city. We believe you do too, because you introduced us to the building. So let's make it work. And that's a yoga thing too, right? When you come up against an obstacle, it's how do you respond to it? And um, we responded by taking a step back, reassessing, bringing our skills to the table, and quite frankly, asking for for help and advice. (laughs) This is the first time I've ever done it. So I'm very raw about now what? Tell me what you think, weighing the options, and then coming to a decision on how to take karma yoga, skillful action, right? (laughs) Yeah. I think, I mean, something that I've known about you, Allison, you described yourself at the top of our interview as someone who like likes to get out and do things and like, let's just start and let's just do it, which I've always appreciated about you, like specifically in our relationship that we've had professionally over the years, because I am so the opposite. I'm like, (laughs) like, I'm like, let me take, let me take five to 10 years to like, think about this journal on it. Like really go internally. Yeah. Yeah. Live in a cave with it for, for a long time. Um, That's not totally true though, Dave, because 
You started the refugee program after teacher training. We you brought me over to Dorcas. That's right. Um, which and we did the Planned Parenthood for, for healthcare workers. Yeah. 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 So you so, showed up. You did it. <laughs> I, I know. I may, I may be. I may be embellishing a little bit, but that tends to be my habit. Um, but what I'm also hearing you describe is not just like the go getterness of it all, but. I don't want to say like knowing your limits, but it, there's there's a you know for people who are geared towards social change, making a difference, serving, being of value, like living with purpose. A lot of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast that I've always been interested in and, and trying to do myself, there seems like there's also just this inherent value of knowing your limitations as a single person, and, mm-hmm. and like mentioning asking for help. Um, enlist like we talked about relationships and enlisting partners. Um, is that also a part of the the skill of being in a leadership position is just knowing when this isn't your area of expertise or just acknowledging like you can't do it all on your own. So in that maybe even trying would set back the work that you're intending to do for others. Like t- talk about I think that. Absolutely dynamic a that's bit. the case. Um, when I found out about 390 Pine Street, which is the mill, Purchasing it wasn't the challenge. I fell in love with the building. I knew it met our mission. It was aligned, but it was how do you take it to the next step? And I had never worked in the affordable housing arena. I mean, that's a whole nother language. That type of fundraising and environmental cleanup work, I mean, that's just a whole nother level mm. of what we were doing at Shree. And I didn't want Shree to suffer the day-to-day operations of it while we were taking on this next strategic piece. So yeah, I took a step back and said, who knows this better than me? Who is worth investing in who can develop our vision with skill with us in a way that's meaningful? I mean, we were going to make mistakes along the way, but you know what? In general, we there haven't been a lot. I, I'm so grateful. Like we've, we've made it. I've been told some affordable housing projects takes, takes a minimum of 10 years to develop. Even with the pandemic, and inflation and the fires that I mentioned next door, we hope to be open in January, which puts us around the five-year mark. But I think it's about picking the partners also, Dave, who you feel comfortable with. I had known Linda Weisinger at Pawtucket Central Falls Development Corporation on other projects and other work she had done. We covered some of her work in, in our in our newscast. I respected her as a person. Um, and I just reached out to her and I said, we're probably going to purchase this building this is the vision. What kind of team do you have? What would that look like? So between, I'm just going to give them shout outs, Linda Weisinger, Andrew Pearson, Kim Perea, construction, administration, executive director duties. We worked together for two years on a purchase and sales agreement before we even got to the cleanup, before we got to construction, which is today. And I'm, I'm not afraid to ask questions, even if they might be really basic questions for them, but not for me. And I have a relationship with them where they're patient with me and they're thoughtful and they know that I do the work on the other end too. That's the thing about building relationship. It's like you have to both put in the same amount of energy for it to work, to respect one another. Um, and I think they've learned some stuff from me when it comes to working with city officials and teachers. Every time we have a construction meeting, I've got Shri teachers coming in and out for tours because Sim Yarn was there yesterday who runs Veteran Affairs. He's meeting all the, the team. So it's a two-way street. But I think it's really important to to set boundaries, to know what you're good at, what you need more skill with, and don't be afraid to ask for help. Sheree has not skipped a beat either because Shannon took over for operations during the pandemic. I was talking about phone calls. That takes time to have a thoughtful conversation. I can't log into my account. I lost my email. You name it. I need an iPad. How do I get it? So Kristen, who runs our military project, we put her in a new role called our student advocate. And if I didn't have time because I was dealing with Pine Street to take a phone call, phone calls, emails, Kristen got right on the phone and she walked people through, click on this, 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 and then you'll see me on the screen. And I think that's really important. So we built out during COVID different layers of management where we identified different things that people wanted to do and could do. We found grants to support them and their time. And then we weren't afraid to ask for help. And I, I, I say that all the way down to the superintendent on the construction site. And if we're at the site, I really only go like a couple days a week so I don't drive everybody crazy. But <laughs> I have a question about like, oh, that's weird. Why is that tile there? They tell me. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> 
<laughs> like I'm, I'm all about a compromise too. The architect's like, what now? I'm like, well, I'm just wondering why that door's staying. Here's why. Because if the door's open, we don't have a handicap ramp and somebody could get hurt. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so I lean on people, Dave. I really do. Yeah. I definitely yeah. lean on people who I respect and who I feel aligned right. with. Absolutely. It's an important stipulation. So I, before we wrap up, I just have a couple questions left. I want to talk a little bit more about funding and you've already been so generous with your time. So thank you. But I, yeah. I wanted to ask you because I know uh, that you have in 2014 with your partner, you started an interesting vent- venture that some might say was also like either like financially risky or just like out of your wheelhouse because you started a snack line called Shree Bark. And this is something, this is a snack that's distributed all over the state. Uh, it also helps to fund your your yoga outreach programs, and it provides like a more healthy snack option in free and mm-hmm. reduced uh, breakfast programs throughout New England schools. So it's at this it's another like something that seems simple that could be very complicated in production uh, and and in creating you know like uh, creating a food item is I think a lot more complicated than people realize. <laughs> but it has this like multifaceted impact where you can buy it as a as a consumer at commercial stores. You could buy it from the Nook coffee shop in East Greenwich that my friend Shannon Wiley runs, who you, you know as well, uh, Allison. Um, you can buy it at Whole Foods and so forth. So ha- did, did you have this vision in mind when you when you and your partner thought of like creating this, no. um, like a gr- granola bar snack? Um, how did that kind of come about? I know it's probably a long story, but if you could give us the cliff notes about, about, about how this builds into supporting these free programs. Again, another example of how the hybrid, like for-profit, nonprofit side uh, sure. complement each other. Dave, my partner, is a tremendous cook. And he bakes a little bit, but our first fundraiser, when we realized we needed to start our own nonprofit to some to fund some of these programs, he just whipped up some granola. <laughs> That's all he did. He just whipped up some granola in our kitchen. And he's like, you know, everybody's got to have a snack. Let's just bring this down there. So during the day, people can munch on something. So that was our fundraiser. Um, actually, it was in 2012 and 2011. We were kind of just playing around with it. And then in 2014, enough people over the course of a couple of years kept asking, where do I get this? I like it. It tastes good. We decided, oh, well, maybe we'll try something with it. Now back to Rhode Island and everything being close to one another, we were introduced through our neighbor at Shree. We were on Broad Street. There was a little restaurant on the corner. He introduced us to the this bakery around the corner that was a nut-free, women-owned bakery. We brought them the recipe and said, can you kind of take this to another level, stay true to the recipe, but let's do this in a commercial kitchen. And we hit it off with the Murray's. So we just started trying different flavor profiles. We started bringing it into schools through a grant with Blue Cross Blue Shield and the Rhode Island Healthy School Coalition came to one of our yoga and smart snacking programs. So the mindfulness piece at the end of our class, we replaced it with a snack and talked about smart snacking, just paying attention to What's on the label? If it says there's a cranberry, where's the cranberry? What does the cranberry taste like? And just kind of bringing kids back to a place of mindful eating, not about calorie count or anything like that, but just paying attention to the things around you through a snack. The Rhode Island Healthy School Coalition in 2015 said, gosh, why isn't something like this in our free and reduced breakfast programs? So then we started bringing it into the free and reduced breakfast programs. We had to change the formula a little bit to meet USDA requirements. We went from a bar to a round and a muffin. But Dave, it's this showing up. We were teaching the class, Karen came, saw the snack, connected us with the bakery, and just one thing led into another. So we found a bakery to bake for us <laughs> because Dave also has a full-time job. He's the chief photographer at Channel 5 in Boston. That's a whole other story. But we're both journalists doing these things on the side. So we recognize our limits, right? So we connected with the bakery. We were aligned. We figured out a workflow that worked. Dave now handles all the operations and we distribute through Farm Fresh Rhode Island, a nonprofit in Rhode Island. And we're now in Vermont public schools based upon our relationship with Farm Fresh too. During the pandemic though, we did make some changes. We're not in as many grocery stores as we used to be. And thinking about there's only so many hours in the day and what does your mission look like? We just decided going direct to the consumer or to smaller businesses like Shannon at the Nook and then direct to schools felt more consistent for us. And quite frankly, it was less time, more value. And then we were able to use that to help fund our nonprofit arm. So I'm very sensitive to things being really effective and efficient. And when I realized doing a ton of demos at Whole Foods wasn't really paying off, 
It was a lot of time for, you know, a couple of cases a month. We took a step back during COVID when we had a little, t- a little bit of time to strategize. And we decided, you know what? Let's spend more time in the schools. Mm. Let's spend more time with the smaller coffee shops. And it's been much more profitable, which has been much more meaningful too, because then we're able to fund our nonprofit at a higher level. So what that means is on the nonprofit end, proceeds from Shreebark, then there's a line item in our budget. At the end of every year, it donates a portion of its sales so that the grants that don't come through necessarily, Shreebark sales fill it so we can keep funding programs that make sense to our overall mission. So Dave is in charge of Shreebark. Just want to be clear about that. My partner, Dave, (laughs) is brilliant at managing time and he coordinates between the bakery and Farm Fresh. The last question I want to ask you is probably the most important. It's the most it's the most journalistic question that I have uh, out of the bunch. So here it goes. Um, for the Will Ferrell fans out there, uh, I, I really <laughs> must ask you as an on-TV news anchor, have you had any Ron Burgundy moments that you wish you could have back of where you course. said something you'd... <laughs> I've called a fire truck something other than a fire truck. I've got about <laughs> 3 million YouTube views. Uh, there you yeah, go. I we're human. Yes, we are human. So especially when I was working with Dan Janik, we had lots of moments like that. Um, with Mario, it's a little more subdued. But it's all about how you react to these things, right? No matter how scared say, you might be, stuff happens. <laughs> I can't imagine how stressful it is to be on when you're live on air all the time. Like I get nervous enough for recording things that I personally can edit things out of. So I give you a lot of credit, but with that, Allison, Allison Bologna is the founder and executive director of Shri Studio and Shri Service Corps, a social enterprise delivering free and accessible yoga classes to underrepresented communities throughout southern New England. You can join her in studio. You can grab Shri Bark where they're distributed, or you can catch her on an upcoming broadcast of NBC10 News Sunrise program soon if you're in the area. Allison, thank you so much for joining us on The News Story Is and for talking uh, about Shri and all the work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, share this episode with a friend or leave us a rating and review, which goes a long way into helping other listeners find and enjoy our show. Until next time, I'm Dave Ursillo. This has been The New Story Is. Bye for now.